Well, if you'll stand up, we'll say our prayers for the Holy Spirit. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Come, O Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of thy faithful, and kindle in them the fire of thy love, send forth thy spirit, and they shall be created. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Somebody reminded me what a thing I had down on my notes but forgot to say, the famous proverb, not often used today outside Ivy League circles, Athanasius contra mundum, St. Athanasius against the world. It still is used today, and it represents a man who had the whole world against him because he insisted on the meaning of the Incarnation, that Jesus and his Father are equal. They're both God. The temptation has been all down the ages either to say our Lord was not a man or to say he was an apparition or to say that he was a man and therefore raised up to some kind of second-hand divinity. Saint Athanasius at the Council of Nicaea and after it, he was the first man who tried to get back to what the apostles had taught and had worried about. He had a terrible life, age 27, about 26 was when he was a deacon at the council, and then after that, chosen as Bishop of Alexandria by acclamation, he was in exile five times. The Arians swept the whole of the Mediterranean, the whole of Spain, parts of France. Everybody was holding that Jesus, though a holy and great person, was not God. Athanasius ended up spending two whole periods of his life in the desert with the holy old hermits, and he wrote the life of St. Anthony the Hermit. He also was exiled to Germany, right away from Egypt. He lived at Trier, and there he first introduced the idea of monasticism to the West, so that even the great St. Benedict and the first monks, without knowing it, owed their very start of the idea of a community to this great doctor. He was restored to honor before he died, and he is the outstanding teacher of the early church. As I was saying to you, that the whole thing happened again 1,500 years later with Cardinal Newman, who was the pr Protestant parson who worked on Athanasius all his life and brought him back to the Episcopalian church. So you and I ought to love him, though he was a theologian. It's a great lesson to us, as Newman says, that lovely religious feelings have no meaning without doctrine. He says, if you haven't got dogmas and if you haven't got a solid belief, then all warm feelings do is to try and warm up a corpse. So we ought to honor St. Athanasius. As I say, I've come to know more and more about him. Augustine, Basil, Hilary, 
all these other great men came after him, but he gave the lead in the meaning of Jesus becoming a man. One other question I might mention in the tapes you heard at lunch, that Father Spencer, who came back to Oxford uh, having been a very distinguished clergyman, when he became a Catholic, he, he threw away, as he said, four or five thousand pounds a year, which was a lot in those days. That Father Spencer is the great uncle, I think, of a certainly, or grand, great, great uncle of Lady Diana Spencer, who's marrying Prince Charles. So it gives us a chance to pray for her, uh, seeing that her wedding will be a terrible anxiety after the uh, shots at the Pope. Yes, Father Spencer played a large part in Cardinal Newman being resuscitated. He became a passionist, Father Ignatius Spencer, and a man worth noting. Well, now at our meditation today, again, it's rather starts more difficult. I have to go so quick to fit into the half hour of a tape. We thought this today about ourselves and what we learn when we find that God has a private life. It was thanks to Athanasius that we realized that the infinite God is not alone, like that terrible gorilla in the Denver Zoo, that, uh, that God has his own private life. All we know is what he revealed to us, and we do know that the three persons of the Blessed Trinity appeared all together at the same time at our Lord's baptism. The Father's voice was heard, our Lord was standing in the water, and the Holy Spirit came. In the sermon which Newman preached, which you'll hear at supper tonight, you'll hear how St. Athanasius made clear we're not going to understand the holy mystery, but we're given enough that it can serve our faith and devotion. So there we are, human beings, struggling towards God. And I would recommend all of us, if you have time, um, uh, to read the, where w the greatness of God as shown with Moses, because there we start with as far as you and I can get. It's in the chapter 34 or 33, 33 of Exodus, and it's an amazing scene. I bet very few of us have prayed about it, and yet you go out in the garden here and take it, you'll see just where human beings end, just how much we understand of God. And the Lord said to Moses, sorry, Moses said, I pray thee, he's talking to God, Moses said, I pray thee, show me thy glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place with by me where you can stand upon the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. It's an extraordinary story 
of Moses pleading to see God's glory, like you and I might when we say they are Father, or when we adore God, we'd love to see him, and God can put us in the cleft in the rock, and by putting his hand there we won't fall out, <laughs> and then his glory will pass. We can only see his back, namely his reflection. You can't see God as he tells us. When you go into a garden, or when, if you can't call this a garden, it's more like a whole state, and you look at the, at the Potomac, there the glory of God is seen in reflection. But that's as far as we'll ever get. That's where all the holy men, pagans, Jews, they can all get that far. It's the most moving scene, and it shows our limitations in an extraordinary way. Yet St. Paul added to it, St. Paul said in famous chapter 13 of Corinthians, we see now in a mirror darkly, but then face to face. One day I'll know even as I'm known. Where Moses could only see God's reflection, St. Paul says we see a reflection now, but we're going to see him face to face and to know God as he knows us. So St. Paul added a lot. But the main thing is, with all our struggles and all the great figures of the Old Testament, there they stopped. Now Athanasius was so great because he then said, well, now let's look at it from God's point of view. And here is, I believe, where you and I really have to think and pray that our, our Lord will make it clear to us what the Incarnation means. I know thousands and thousands of Christians, so-called, well-meaning, all-intentioned, loving the Bible, and they, they've, the whole story is not fulfilled in them because they only got halfway. Jesus said, I've not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. It's not fulfilled in many people's hearts yet. Why? Because it's impossible for us to believe that the infinite God would come down on earth. We can imagine him sending, as I say, his deputy, or raising up a man like Jesus, like Mahatma Gandhi, to represent him. The Hindus don't mind that. They even thought the Pope Paul, when he went to Bombay, they came by the million to see him, as God made man. But you see, they didn't know quite what it meant. The biggest trouble was, how could God describe, how could he explain that he had to come down on earth? Now, Mr. C.S. Lewis gives us three or four beautiful texts, which I can't go through now, uh, but are worth taking down to look up when you're at home or when you are wanting to pray now in your free time. You take, first of all, the relationship that God described between himself and us. This is what God revealed, not where our brain carries us. Moses got stuck there in a cleft. The first one is Jeremiah chapter 19, when God said to Jeremiah, go to the potter's house and watch the potter making a vase. It's a marvelous chapter. You could read the whole thing. I've marked a place here, but I'm not going to read it out. Because the potter, he decides the material, he decides the shape, the vase can't move without him. If he doesn't like it, he can break it and start again. But ultimately, the vase stands on the table away from the maker. The maker made it, he chose the color, he did everything, but he's made something outside himself. The next step, of course, was the, in the Bible often with the Lord is my shepherd, 
or our Lord in the gospel, a shepherd with his sheep. There the shepherd looks after the sheep, they know his voice, and they can walk. A vase can't walk, thank God. And so you've got a moving thing where the shepherd knows the sheep, the sheep love him, he protects them, he produces food, he looks after them. You could read the wonderful psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, because that's the next step. Then after that comes the step in Luke 15 and those marvelous three parables of a father with his children. And many of you are in that boat. Your baby or your little boy or your little girl not only is outside you, you gave them everything, you created them, procreated them, but now they can think for themselves, they can disobey, and yet you've got to bond with them. And finally, of course, in the Canticle of Canticles, chapter 2, a boy with his girl, where love comes in. You've got four different relationships in the Old Testament and the New, all describing what Moses couldn't work out, or we can't. This is what God revealed increasingly until you come to a father with his children. Now you see the problem that God had. Any mother and father in this chapel understands. The big headache with God, if I can say that with great respect to the Almighty, his headache was that he took the risk and made, eventually, after trees and porcupines and all these other lovely things, and then eventually he risked it and made something that had freed will and could choose. If I'd been God, I wouldn't have risked it. I'd have remained a dictator like Hitler. God could have stayed a dictator, but once he took the risk and gave that, then he had a strange thing that God can't force me. It's the greatest thing he ever made when you look at the trees here and the beauty of the whole of this estate, and yet any one of us here, when I see you walking around, I think None, no oak tree's got what that lady's got, that she's got to love God freely. God's not going to force her to. He can punish her, he can this and that, but ultimately he wanted her or me to love him. Therefore God simply had to change. He took the risk, he made it. I feel it's a bit like the, your lovely shuttle that went off the other day. Remember how the engines wouldn't fire properly? I'm still wondering uh, what those two pilots did standing there while <laughs> they waited to see whether it was going to blow them up or not. They did it about 20, 20 times over the, um, a year. How they got in there, stood there for six hours, saying the rosary, I suppose, <laughs> if that was strong enough, and then got out again and had to go back again the next day. While the mechanics tried to make the engine fire, whatever it was that wouldn't. But the, the geniuses who made the shuttle, the engine firing was only irrelevant. That was only the start. They wanted a thing that's going to go up and down and fly about and go back the next time and last for my... They had another end. And God, as, as, as St. Athanasius saw, God didn't just come down on earth because we poor fools had sinned. He came down certainly to forgive our sins, but only to, because he wanted the machine to work as he made it, that I could love him. Holiness is one step further than justification, as Newman said. You're forgiven, and that's the end. You grow more holy every day. Holiness goes on and on and on. It's a view, point of view. And so our Lord God took this tremendous risk that he made man free, so that after that, 
though he never need have done it, he wanted to. He was an artist. You have it with your children. Your little boy, you could maltreat them, you can lock them in the bedroom, you can cut their food off and all that. Okay, but why don't you do it? Because you love them. And because your satisfaction as a father and mother is going to be that that little darling grows up to as far as he can. He may fail you, but you want him to be a perfect boy or a perfect girl. You want to develop his brain. You get glory from it. It's not glory. You get satisfaction. Why we should suppose that God is less an artist than the great artists? No, if an artist paints a lovely picture, he loves it. He wants to be with it. He knows where it's going. He watches it. Even your little children, if they do a drawing for you, they know it's theirs. That's mine. And if any other child gives you another picture, then the little one says, no, that's mine, and takes the others away. But you love what your own. As our Lord said in Luke 15, with the girl who lost the coin, with the shepherd who lost the sheep, with the father, with the prodigal. He wanted his own back. Why we should suppose that our Lord God loves us less than, say, our girl does? If my boy or girl, when I'm young, if we love each other, why should we suppose that our Lord God's love is less, seeing he made us all? No, holiness is going to be that I'm going to be able to say, Abba, Father. God's, our Lord's going to put in me the spirit that I can call the infinite God Daddy, our Father who art in heaven. That was the end, not just to wipe out our faults on Calvary, which was very helpful, and on, but much more important was to get the thing to work, the shuttle, so eventually all the other mechanisms would come into action and his God's genius would be fulfilled. So therefore it's very, very important, I think, St. Irenaeus, St. Athanasius makes it very clear we know from our own nature that when we say God so loved this world, as our Lord said to Nicodemus, he practically gave it away that God so loved this world that he had to come down and live with us. Otherwise, he would never get us to love him. We cannot love really, like in the Old Testament, the Father alone. We can worship him, we respect him. It's marvelous, the faith of the Jews and the Mohammedans, but something terrible is missing. So the problem of our Lord becoming a man. And I believe the key to the whole thing is our Lord God had to eliminate fear. No human being can really love when they're afraid. You've seen that with your children. It's not much love if they're scared of you. You've got to frighten them sometimes, but no, there's more to life than fear, more to love than fear. So what happens? You read Luke 1 and 2, the joyful mysteries. We all say, oh yes, they're joyful. They're not, they're terrifying. Holy Zachary, when he went into the temple, he was scared stiff. In fact, he was so struck down, he was struck dumb. The very first words used in Luke 12, Luke 1 is, fear not. Our Blessed Mother wasn't singing the Lord's hymn when the angel appeared. We are told she was afraid. The first word to her was, Fear not, Mary, thy prayer is heard. You look at the shepherds, you think they're all singing, um, uh, Hark the herald angels sing. They were not. We're told they were terrified, and the angel had to say, Don't be afraid, we're bringing you tidings of great joy. 
All the joyful mysteries start with fear and the angel taking it away. And therefore, when our Lord became a man, the, the great thing was nobody had to be afraid of him. He had all power. They'd learn more about him later, but they started equal. They didn't have to be scared. And that's why I'm going to end my, our, our conference on the most wonderful saint, I think, of all. In my parliament years ago, I made him sort of head of the Senate. <laughs> he was too good to have as a senator, and so I put him in St. Joseph. Now, when I was a little boy, I bet you were the same. We all felt poor St. Joseph, and he was always in a draft and always looking after the donkey, and, you, you know, you felt he had rather a raw deal. I've only come to realize now he's the key to the whole thing. Because if our Lord didn't want us to be afraid of, his, of him when he became a man, that we could go out and play with the baby Jesus and be close to him, then his father had to be a person of no importance, a man who was totally ordinary like ourselves. And that's why, in a way, when, they say, when the crowd said, who, how did Jesus learn this and that? Isn't he the son of Joseph the carpenter? Then the infinite God has succeeded. That his father was a carpenter, that was the first step. So you and I never have to feel the least afraid of St. Joseph. I'm a bit scared of St. Ignatius, I can tell you that, and some of you have a good reason to be scared of the Archangel Gabriel, etc. St. Joseph in no way. He was one of us. <coughs> Secondly, he was Our Lady's boy. All generations shall call me blessed. Uh, that He's the only one who loved her before he knew that. He loved her before he had any idea she was going to be Mother of God. So in heaven today, whatever else we all say to her, all the rosaries, it's Joe she listens to. It's a marvelous thing. I don't know why when I was young they always said he was a spouse of Mary. That sounded pretty awful. <laughs> We're getting out of that now. We're saying he, that he was her boy. That St. Joseph was a working man, totally honorable. Then he did a marvelous thing. He, the only thing that God needed, he got from this working man, namely his good name. It was because St. Joseph was just that therefore Our Lady and Our Lord were preserved from all scandal. The first charges made against Our Lord came in the, in the next century when Joseph was dead. Then, of course, they said, when they heard about the virgin birth, they said that Our Lady was uh, loose morals and that Jesus was illegitimate. They would have said that at Christmas, excepting that Joseph was just. So what he gave to the church was his good name. And it's an extraordinary thing. We forget all that, and so we don't realize what an extraordinary saint he is. To give you all, and what, for us too, again, we were talking about holiness, and if the prophet had asked you to do some great thing, why, why not what he's now asked of you? Probably our Lord, for many of us, that's all he asks us to do. That people seeing us, seeing that we're just, judge the whole of the church and the incarnation by that. We owe to St. Athanasius uh, that when our Lord came on earth, at when 30, when he came out to start his public life, nobody was afraid of the infinite God. He just looked like an ordinary baby, they knew his mother, and they knew his dad. 
Only Our Lady. I wonder how far she knew, really. Only Our Blessed Mother knew. Our Lord wasn't an adopted child. He was a, a, our Lord's legal child. Whether St. Joseph even ever told Our Lady, he had that terrible nightmare, terrible situation, where the doctors of the church agree he only had two choices. He could put Our Lady away publicly if he'd been a Puritan, or because if he loved her, he could put her away quietly, and God said to him, don't put her away at all, and told him the secret. And he, as far as we know, we don't know who he told. Our Blessed Mother must have known. Whether he exchanged that dream with her, I don't know. But the odd thing is uh, that our Blessed Mother and, our, and St. Joseph, it was their extraordinary union that made it possible for the God who couldn't let his glory be seen by Moses to come down on earth so that we are not the least afraid of Jesus. When you look through the gospel, I can find no case of anyone who was compelled to do anything. Where the Old Testament is full of thunder, it's a wonderful story, but it's not the whole story. The poor Jews hadn't got a trinity. No, the incarnation, the infinite God became a man. As Newman is always saying, you know, we t tend to say Jesus was man, Jesus was God. What we ought to say, the second person of the Blessed Trinity had two natures. I read it years ago, I can't prove it now, I don't know where I got it from, that in the early church we made the sign of the cross with three fingers for the Holy Trinity, and the Greek church do the same today. Then when um, Athanasius and the troubles of, with the Arians came, when the church defined that Jesus, the person of the second person of the Blessed Trinity, had two natures, then we made the sign of the cross with all our fingers. Whichever is true, I don't know. Mother Seton, when she made the sign of the cross for the first time in Italy, when she was a Protestant, she trembled all over at the meaning of it, which we have long since forgotten. It's worth remembering in a retreat. So Joseph then, he gave his good name to our Blessed Mother. And it, he's, that's the extraordinary thing. He wasn't a Catholic. The greatest saint belonged to the old law. The church hadn't begun then. He had no sacraments. He knew nothing about that. He knew the covenant. He knew the Old Testament. He went to the synagogue. And he's the patron of a happy death because he certainly died uh, before our Lord. Or our Lord would not have given his mother to St. John on the cross. You can't believe our Lord never went more than 70 miles in all his life that he didn't come to look after the man dying who had given him a home. Because it's an extraordinary thing St. Joseph uh, did all that. So St. Joseph undoubtedly um, is the patron of a happy death. He's also been made patron of the church, uh, though he is, of course, a layman, which is a good sock in the eye for priests. That when it comes to looking after the church of God, that the church herself chose a layman and a Jew in order to look after us all. So he really is a splendid failure all round. Now, having said all that, then I end with another saint very quickly. The saint who gave us St. Joseph was St. Teresa of Avila. He was hardly known in the gospel until it was certain that Jesus was God which took some years and much arguing and the defeat of the Arians, even our Blessed Mother didn't get prayed to. Then once they knew that Jesus was the 
infinite trinity, he was the second person, then Mary became the mother of God, not before. Poor St. Joseph was still trailing around because in the Middle Ages they didn't know what to make of him. They knew he was a figure. They made him terribly old. That makes me laugh because they thought he would look more decent with Mary so young that they thought her spouse better look about a hundred so there could be no naughty thoughts. <laughs> so they made him look as though he was the patriarch Joseph warmed up. No, he was the same age as our Blessed Mother and died long before her. So, so Joseph was left out in the cold until Teresa, right all those centuries later, Saint Teresa, when she started having her ecstasies and visions, and she really is one of the most rewarding saints for prayer, then she suddenly began to talk about St. Joseph, in two places especially in her autobiography. In the first place, she says that she learnt in prayer that as Jesus as a boy had always done what St. Joseph asked, as a model boy and a lovely father, he still does in heaven. Whatever Joseph asks, he gives. And any dads in the chapel here will agree that certainly is the right case, that when your son is old, he'll still try and do what you told him to do. So our Lord, even in heaven now, listens to St. Joseph because he obeyed St. Joseph all through his teenage years. And the second thing, right at the end, Teresa reformed her convent and left the incarnation in Avila and founded a new convent, very strict. And um, our Blessed Mother told her to call it after St. Joseph. Teresa, in her vision, saw Our Lady very clear and St. Joseph not so clear, but our Blessed Mother kind of put Teresa's hand into Joseph's and said, entrust the convent to him and it'll be safe. And that's why in Spain, South America, Mexico today, the greatest feast of the year, even greater than the Holy Trinity, is St. Joseph. St. Teresa of Avila created, rightly created, his position, and when there was a row at Avila among the nuns, as does happen even among those who don't talk, the strange thing is, when a row broke out, St. Teresa carried a great statue of St. Joseph and put it in the prioress's stall, where it is still today. I saw it. You see all the places for the sisters on both sides, and right in the middle is St. Joseph with his arm out, and they hang the keys of the convent on it every night. St. Joseph spends all night holding the keys. <laughs> and with that edifying thought, we'll think and pray to St. Joseph.